Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Matt Prindeville to the show. Matt Prindeville is the CEO and Chief Solutioneer for Upstream, a norms-disrupting nonprofit sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution and today's one-way, throwaway society. In this role, Prindeville works with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and culture hackers to ideate and accelerate the transition from single-use to reuse. His responsibilities include content creator, spokesperson, brand strategist, executive leader, fundraiser, and relationship cultivator. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. It's wonderful to be with you. Matt, I appreciate you joining. Matt, before we dig into Upstream, I'd like to ask you to share an anecdote that you gave during a TEDx talk regarding building ashtrays or making ashtrays in school. <laughs> oh, you did your research, Raj. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, you know, so the the anecdote that I like to give is that, um, you know, when when I was a kid, I, I can remember that... Um, you used to go on an airplane and, and people would be smoking like right on the airplane. And, um, you know, this was also the time that if you went into a uh, restaurant, they'd asked you if you wanted to sit in the smoking or the non-smoking section. And in my elementary school art class, I'm in my mid forties and in my elementary school art class, we actually, we made ashtrays <laughs> for relatives and unsuspecting neighbors. And this was just what we did for fun in the 80s, right? This was the normal back then. Uh, but it's decidedly not normal for my kids. And I meet kids today that don't even know what an ashtray is because <laughs> the norms you know, around smoking have changed so much in my lifetime. We've gone from almost half the population smoking um, to less than, I think we're down to about 10% now. Um, and so, you know, I like to use that analogy because I think that a lot of the time when people think about the way the world is, uh, especially in regard to things like plastics or waste or the way that we consume, it's hard for people to envision what the world would be like without doing things the way that we're currently doing them. And what we try to say is, look, things change all the time. And one of the biggest drivers of that is really around, you know, th these, these conversations that we have around what's acceptable and what's not. These are the things that really kind of help to govern the norms of society. Um, and those norms help to drive change almost more quickly than anything else. So when I heard you tell that story, I grew up in London and funny enough, also made ashtrays in pottery class. It's part of a global curriculum. That's right. That's right. <laughs> brought, to, brought to you by Philip Morris. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and my yeah. dad still has that ashtray somewhere tucked away. You know, it's one of those things that go in the keepsake forever. Right. And you mentioned the restaurants and we used to do quite a bit of international travel as kids. And I remember getting on these Pan Am flights and there would be a smoking section and a non-smoking section one seat apart. Right, and, right. <laughs> you 
you know, I, I look back to and I think to myself, like, what, what were they thinking? I know. But, but to your point about, you know, how things change, and we'll get to upstream here in a moment, but let's take smoking, for example. It took lawsuits and it took health issues like cancer. There was almost like a, right. a, a tangible something that people could put their finger on, a victim, if you will, That's and say, right. hey, look, smoking is directly causing this. We found the link. Scientists have found the link. You know, climate change and pollution it's very difficult, although there are you know, obviously strong correlations, it's very hard to convince people to put their finger on that direct direct link. How do you how do you propose or how do you think we can perhaps go about making that change to you know what you see as a better future? Yeah, gr- great question. I mean, I think one of the one of the interesting things on the topic that we really specialize in is really about how do we address plastic pollution in the environment and how do we address um, not just plastic pollution, but also all of the uh, unnecessary extraction of natural resources from the planet to serve kind of this rampant cons- overconsumption lifestyle that we've become accustomed to here in the United States and that we've helped to export all over the world. And what's interesting with 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 plastic pollution is that a lot of what we see in the environment are branded products, right? So when you look at at what is shows up um, on the rivers and beaches, uh, not just here in the United States but around the world, it it is some of the biggest comp- you know transnational uh, consumer packaged goods companies in the world. It's companies like Coca Cola, Nestle, Procter and Gamble, Unilever, PepsiCo, and so you know in some cases we've been able to uh, help show through do, doing activities with uh, our partners around the world, like beach cleanups, where we're able to actually show the brands that are winding up in the environment. And that has helped to put a lot of pressure on these brands to consider doing things differently. And so that's actually been a helpful driver for change, has been showing that you know it doesn't matter where you look in the world, the same global brands are the ones whose products are winding up in the environment. And when we look at that lens of, of well, okay, so how does this relate to, to climate change? Well, increasingly, a lot of the fossil fuel companies are recognizing that the world is, is, is moving towards a future where we're using a lot less fossil fuels for fuel, for powering our cars and heating our homes and office buildings, but that they can keep the inf- that infrastructure alive, that drilling and, and pipeline infrastructure and manufacturing infrastructure alive if they can start diverting more of those fossil fuels towards the making of plastics. And of course, the the sink for where to put those plastics is in disposable products. That is where you're able to get as much throughput as possible of these plastic materials and food packaging, especially uh, to-go food, beverage packaging, um, and consumer packaged goods. And so, you know, we do have a direct nexus around what is winding up in the environment. And also we have, you know, it's, we're not making up the idea that the, the petrochemical industry has been very clear <laughs> in all of their reports to investors that the future for them is not in fuel, it's in plastics. And so for us, when we look at these trends, we say, well, you know, it's great that we're not using as much fossil fuels for fuel and that we're heading towards, I think, I think we, in in a lot of ways, we are going to be uh, making significant progress toward this net zero future. But if the counter to that is we're just putting all these fossil fuels into plastics that are polluting the planet and also polluting our own health, um, that's not really going to be a win. 
And so for us, you know, we're focused on the kinds of solutions that are actually going to transform um, these consumption systems. Now, when you say us, I danced around a little bit, but can you give the audience an overview of Upstream and your role at yeah. the organization? Yeah, happy to. Yeah. So Upstream, we're a nonprofit organization based here in the United States. And our focus is on sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution by helping people and businesses and communities shift out of single use to reuse. And there are some big reasons for why we put the highlight on single use and, and reuse being the solution. With all the attention paid to single-use plastic, you have a lot of companies that are saying, hey, don't use single-use plastic, use my single-use product. It's made out of paper or it's made out of aluminum or it's made out of mushrooms. But when you look at the science behind the, the analyses of the environmental impacts of just shifting from one single-use product to another, you're basically just trading one set of environmental issues for others. So you might not have more uh, plastic in the ocean, but if you're using single-use paper, you're going to have greater climate pollution. Uh, you're going to be cutting down more trees. You're going to be potentially using more toxic chemicals. And so what we found is that you know, you're kind of just out of the frying pan into the fire when we're just talking about this kind of one-way, throwaway, linear, single-use mindset. But the good news is, is that reuse always wins for the environment. We always hit this break-even point, whether it's a couple of uses for a stainless steel fork over a disposable one or 14 uses for a reusable to-go container over a disposable one, where we hit that break-even point and each additional use starts to accrue environmental benefits. And when you think about that, a lot of reusable products are designed to be in packaging, it's designed to last for hundreds, if not thousands of uses. You can see how we just start to accrue those environmental benefits. And then the other good news is that we found that by shifting from single use to reuse, uh, it can also save businesses significant amounts of money through not having to procure the disposables from reduced solid waste management costs, and it can also save governments money from not having to continually clean up uh, all the litter that's out there as well as uh, pay for all the, the solid waste management and recycling costs. Um, and then lastly, it creates opportunities. This new reuse economy creates lots of opportunities for entrepreneurs and investors um, to ideate and, and create new packaging systems that look at packaging uh, not as a product, but as a service. So let me give you an example. You know, we kind of forget the fact that up until kind of the mid 20th century, virtually all of the beer and all of the soda sold in the United States was in refillable glass bottles. And even though we dismantled that infrastructure here in the United States, around the world, everywhere you look, a lot of that refillable infrastructure not only exists, but is also being expanded. Uh, so for example, if you're in Germany, about 80 to 90% of the beer sold in Germany is in refillable glass bottles. If you go down to Brazil, Coca-Cola sells roughly 40% of their products in refillable bottles, uh, and they're expanding um, that. And so one of the things that we're really excited about with reuse and refill is that when you think about the supply chains that it takes to create a, a package, right? And you know, let's just use plastics for example, where you, you know, in the United States, you might be fracking for natural gas. You're then either piping or shipping that down to uh, the Gulf South, where it gets turned into plastic pellets. Those plastic pellets have to be made into a package somewhere. That package has to get to a manufacturer to fill that with soda or with food or whatever else. And then if it gets into a recycling supply chain, oftentimes we are trucking these same materials, these same packages across the world to uh, poor countries. 
where they're often um, recycled in, in quotes here and air quotes in really uh, appalling conditions. And oftentimes those products aren't actually recycled, they're downcycled into something. So you might take a plastic bottle and turn it into a park bench, which has one additional use before it goes to the landfill. And so the point I'm trying to make there is not that we don't want to recycle. Recycling is important. It's much better to use recycled materials than, than virgin materials from the planet. But these are still massive global supply chains with environmental impacts along the way. Now, what's exciting about reuse is that we take that same journey. Let's use the Coca-Cola in Brazil example, right? You make the bottle once, and then you set up these regional washing and refilling hubs in and outside the cities of Sao Paulo and, and Rio de Janeiro and other cities. And now you have these closed loop <laughs> regional systems where the bottles are sold, we use them, we put them in, 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 the, in the reuse bin, they're picked up by Coke, they're sent to a washing facility literally miles down the road, washed, refilled, and then put right back into that community. All of this happening within you know dozens of miles. <laughs> the consumption and production is all happening locally. And also, by the way, those jobs are also being kept there locally. Now, I use the, the Coca-Cola example because this is one that's been around for a long time. But what we're now seeing in cities around the world is that there are new systems that are emerging for to-go coffee cups, for reusable to-go containers for your takeout meals or the meals that are delivered to your home, for consumer packaged goods products, things like shampoo and laundry detergent and dish soap, where entrepreneurs are coming in, they're setting up these regional facilities and they're being able to serve, helping to get people what they want and need without generating any waste. And so when you think about you know, what is needed to do that at scale, what we're talking about is infrastructure and investment and really getting from small companies to transnational corporations invested in this idea of these more localized, more regional closed loop reuse supply chains. You know, you mentioned infrastructure and investment. I think there's a third leg of the stool and it's mindset. I yes. remember, you know, you mentioned growing up in the 80s. I grew up in the same yeah. time frame, but I grew up in London and I clearly remember we would take our own grocery bags to the store. Right. We, we weren't very plastic heavy. In fact, I remember when, so in London, it's called a carrier bag. And yep. if, if you wanted an additional carrier bag, it cost you five pence, 10 pence at the time, whatever it was. And so we were very careful as to how much, you know, we would, whether we, whether or not we'd decide to buy a bag or not. Yep. And when I came to America, you know, things were very different here. When did this shift happen? Because I know, you know, take America back 100 years, there yeah. wasn't always this, this, you know, this idea about just using things one time. It was a shift in mindset. And like you said, things take time. In your yeah. research, do you know when that happened? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it really goes back to the world, the post-World War II economy. So up, up until that point, right, the defining value, not just in America, but really everywhere around the world, the defining value for commerce was was thrift, right? It was like you know, make do with what you have, use it up, make it last, right? All of the the uh, the the mindset of the you know kind of post World War II economies around the world, and still in many places is based around around thrift. And so, what happened during World War II is, of course, you had all of these industries that had to ramp up production for the war effort, and these are you know these are big industries, right? Mining, uh, manufacturing. And so the war started to come to a close and these same industries were like, okay, what are we going to do now, now that the war is over? And this idea was born that we have to keep churning the same amount of materials through the economy 
in peacetime as well as in wartime. And the central idea uh, for a lot of these companies was to sell those materials, you know, aluminum, paper, plastics, you know, which would come later in the form of disposable products to the American people. And so we were the kind of the, the experiment, right? <laughs> and when you look at, at this economy, this post-World War II economy that has you know, become the economy of today, this is really an economy that's set up to reward extraction companies on the front end. So the, the petrochemical companies, the timber companies, the, the mining companies on the front end, and on the back end to reward the waste management companies. And the, and the consumer packaged goods companies and the beverage companies, those types of companies are in the middle. And what they care about is selling products to people. And so if we can actually find ways to create a more circular economy where we're cutting off the extraction end of that, that side, the economy, and cutting off the waste uh, management side of the economy through selling more and more products um, in, in these reuse services, this is what we call this, you know, it's looking at package as a packaging as a service, not as a product, then we'll be able to start, you know, re dramatically reducing the amount of natural resources that we take from the planet. Um, and also the amount of pollution and, 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 and waste to manage on the back end. And this is really significant. I think when you think, when you look at like the percentage of plastics, what they go to, like 40% of plastic production goes to make packaging. <laughs> and, and, you know, depending upon the, the, the statistics you look at, um, you know, somewhere around 25 to 30% is used to make single use packaging. And so if we can start to tackle that, through reimagining the way that we that we get the products that we want and need, that's going to have a huge impact on on these big systems. Now you mentioned extraction on one end of the spectrum, waste management on the other end, and right in the middle sits us, the consumer. That's right. And you know, as we move into the holiday season, you also talked about overconsumption. So yep. we are a huge contributor. You know, the people that are extracting want to sell their products and waste management obviously makes it revenue once the products are used. But we're a huge part of this equation. How do you suggest or perhaps recommend that consumers start asking different questions to change their mindset regarding these single-use plastics? You know, I think a lot of what we're talking about is consumable products, right? And so if you look at what's actually in the environment, just over two-thirds of the plastic products we find in the environment are to-go food and beverage packaging. It's things like you know plastic bottles, it's chip bags, it's to-go containers, it's to-go uh, cups, right? And so that stuff is really ripe for disruption. And so you know what when I what I tell people is you know we want people to be able to have a meal on the go, and we want folks to be able to drink the drinks that they want to drink, but we can do that in ways that don't generate all this unnecessary extraction on the front end and all this waste and pollution on the back end. And it's really about shifting the mindset around reuse, because I think when a lot of us think, you know, hear the word reuse, we think, okay, I got to bring my own water bottle or my coffee cup or my, or I got to, you know, now it's like I'm bringing my to-go cutlery everywhere, but that's putting the burden squarely on the consumer as opposed to putting the burden on business to get us the things that we want and need um, without generating waste. And it's also, as we've come to find out during the pandemic, we are relying on these massive global supply chains, many of which have gotten a lot more expensive in the last five to 10 years, especially around the pandemic. There are supply chain disruptions that can cause 
um, major issues as far as getting the things that you want and, and the producers having access to the materials that they want. And so if we're able to start building more um, reuse and refill systems for getting the, the consumable goods that we want and need, this is again about shrinking those big supply chains down to more regional supply chains that are much more resilient. And they also keep the jobs, they keep the people employed in the region as opposed to outsourcing those jobs elsewhere. And an example that I like to give a lot is that um, a lot of uh, folks in our in our plastics movement, which uh, go we, we call it the break free from plastic movement, where there's 2000 organizations now that are collaborating around the world to solve plastic pollution. And policy is, is a big driver for a lot, a lot of groups. We work a lot on policy as do a lot of the groups we work on work with. And um, w- some of those policies are about banning single use products. And so one of the ones that's been quite easy for us to, to ban has been styrofoam containers, styrofoam packaging, right? It's This stuff has been kind of maligned since the 1970s. <laughs> and we're seeing efforts all around the world to ban styrofoam for lots of good reasons. But what happens in City Hall when a community decides to ban styrofoam is that the styrofoam industry comes in and says, hey, no, 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 you can't do this. You're going to cost jobs. Well, that is an industry that is completely vertically integrated. They've squeezed virtually every human being out of that supply chain as possible. There's one company that owns, I think, 80% of the market share here in the United States. And those jobs aren't in your community. They're, they really are elsewhere to the extent that they exist. Whereas what replaces that styrofoam uh, container could be a reusable to-go service. And those types of services are set up so that you're creating these regional, essentially dishwashing or, or, or container washing warehouses that serve the whole community. They go and deliver the clean uh, containers to the restaurants. They pick them up from customers and from various locations. They wash them, they sanitize them, they put them right back into service the next day. And all of that is done within you know, a dozen, 15, 20 miles of, of, of the surrounding metro area of the city. And it supports jobs in that community. And it's helping to not only uh, address plastic pollution, but it's also helping to create a more sustainable regional economy that's not going to be disrupted by, you know, uh, global supply chain failures. And so, you know, there's lots of examples like this, whereby think, rethinking how we get the consumable things that we want and need um, can really can really change and, and, and shift things. I know this might be a controversial statement or maybe even utopic, but um, maybe we should cut back on meals to go also. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that what the pandemic has made us realize is just how much single-use products are in our lives from, you know, instead of going out to eat, we're ordering all these meals delivered to our house. Instead of buying stuff at the grocery store or the drugstore, we're having it delivered to our homes from Amazon. And I think even, you know, well-intentioned families like ours, you know, dad is a, is a zero-waste uh, leader and, and, and active in this work. You know, we, we still have a, a, a spot in the hall closet where the Amazon boxes are filling up because, you know, we've gotten used to consuming this way. And I think, uh, again, shifting that onus and burden from being on the consumer to really going upstream to the to the producers, to the businesses that want to sell us these products, that's really what we need to be focused on. And again, I think that that there there are places where we can certainly cut back on unnecessary consumption. Fast fast fashion is is a big one. Um, you know, buying products to last instead of just buying, you know, the latest trend. 
uh, all of that stuff is really important. It's going to help reduce the, the consumption impacts and climate, climate impacts and environmental impacts of consumption. But there's a lot of stuff that's just consumable products that, you know, we need to eat food, right? We need, we want to drink drinks and, you know, we don't, I think all of us don't want to just drink water all the time. Um, we have, uh, you know, needs for, for cleaning our house with consumable products. We have needs for washing our bodies with consumable products. So there are lots of different ways to rethink how we deliver those types of products that I think can help us get the things that we want to need without generating all the waste. So back to Upstream, what exactly does Upstream do? Yeah, so we have we have three core projects that we're focused on. We have a, a business innovation project that's really focused on working on scalable pilot projects within industry sectors. Uh, so we're working within the food service sector, we're working within the beverage sector and the consumer packaged goods sector on pilot reuse projects that when they have success, we can show the sector that this is a new way to do something and a way to move forward that is not only going to benefit the environment, but is also going to benefit the bottom line. We know that that from a cost standpoint, the only way for this stuff to scale is for it to become cost comparative or even less than the single use options. So that's the business innovation project. We have a policy project, which is really focused on creating the enabling conditions um, at the city, state, and federal level for this new reuse economy to thrive and emerge. And then we have a social impact project, which is really about helping to put the vision out there, helping to show that this new reuse economy isn't a pipe dream, but it's actually happening now. And so we have a podcast called The Indisposable Podcast. Encourage you guys to go check it out, um, where we're featuring the entrepreneurs and the activists and policymakers that are helping to, to, to create this change in the world. Um, we do live streams every other month where we're featuring different topics and working on hacking the challenges uh, that are inherent in developing this new reuse economy. And then we also um, launch campaigns that are poking fun at single use products and, and, and helping to show that real and reusable is the future. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is, is create more of a, a awareness and more of a platform um, for all of the leaders that are helping to ideate, create and accelerate uh, this new reuse economy. Now, you mentioned a new way to do something as one of the pillars under the business. Can you give an example of a recent, um, I guess, experiment or yeah, project? Yeah, I'd love, love to. Yeah. So, you know, one of the big challenges in, in, in fast casual food service is that there is a perception that it is cheaper to go with disposables. Cheaper, easier, we're going to go with disposables. And that is a misconception that we've been able to prove is actually wrong. And my colleagues at Upstream, uh, Miriam Gordon and Samantha Summer, they founded a project called Rethink Disposable in the San Francisco Bay Area that's worked with hundreds of different food service operations, everything from you know mom and pop restaurant chains to corporate campuses to college campuses. And they've shown that in every single instance in transitioning from single use to reuse for on-site dining, not 90, not 95%, but 100% of the time, um, those businesses have saved money. And so one of the other th barriers that we heard from, especially from some of the bigger companies, so the, the large-scale food management companies, the, what we call concessionaires or enterprise food service, companies like Sodexo or Aramark or Bon Appetit Management Company, Delaware North, is that if they're going to make the shift from single use to reuse, they want to actually be able to have standardized metrics around the environmental benefits of doing that. Uh, so that they can market out to their clients, they can market it out to upper level management, and they can make the case that this was this was not a great, not only a great thing to do for the bottom line, but a great thing to do for the environment. 
and also to be able to manage projects, right? I think that's been one of the things, manage projects in a standardized way. So if I'm the regional accounts manager for Sodexo, for example, and I've got a, you know, I've got a school district, I've got a college campus, I've got a corporate campus, I might have a stadium. How can I manage uh, the, the, the transition from single use to reuse across all of these different operations and calculate all those benefits together so that I've got a narrative and a story to tell? So we went at this, we said, this needs a piece of software. <laughs> and um, we've been working with some of these big companies on designing this piece of software. We call it Chartreuse. Uh, we are soft launching it next month. And what Chartreuse enables a food service company to do is to plug in their existing procurement data on single use products. They then get to select from a menu of all different types of, of reusable products and then that software crunches the numbers on the return on investments and the payback period. So let's say you had to maybe invest in new reusables for the cafeteria and you had to invest in upping your dishwashing capacity. All of that goes into the software, it crunches all the numbers, tells you the exact payback, the exact ROI, and then it crunches all the environmental metrics as well, and it can project them into the future. So you can look you know, three, four, five, 10 years from now and see like what the benefit is from making those decisions. It also enables you to manage those projects and aggregate the data across you know, a variety of accounts. So if you're a Sodexo, you have a Sodexo master account as the regional uh, sustainability officer, you can now manage all the accounts in the state of Maine or the state of California, and you can aggregate all that data together. And now you've got a really powerful and compelling story to tell. So this is part of the way that we work with industry is to like really get in and understand what are the challenges to making some of these transitions? What are the perceptions that actually need to be shifted? And then how do we hack those challenges in partnership um, with these companies? How does a vendor qualify to be on the platform? Well, so we're soft launching it right now with the companies that have helped to design it. And so once we kind of work out the kinks <laughs> with, with companies at a smaller scale, we're planning to, to hard launch it to the world next year. And our hope is, is that, you know, we would have, um, so part of what we do on the, on the organizing and policy side is we also work to, we work with NGOs that are on the ground in cities across the United States to help set up what we call reuse coalitions. And these are um, networks of organizations that have maybe worked to pass a plastic bag ban in the city, or they've worked to create uh, the, the, the recycling policy or a zero waste plan for the city. And what we do is we say, hey, you guys have just uh, helped to uh, get a past plastic bag ban through. Well, the next big thing is, is reuse policy and in helping to build this, this new reuse infrastructure for takeout and delivery, um, we want to partner with you. We want to create the, uh, the resources that you need to have, the community support around doing this. And so we've helped to what we call seed um, a number of reuse coalitions in big cities around the country. So San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, New York City, Boston, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Seattle. Uh, and, and what's really exciting about this is that not only are these are the activists on the ground working to pass policies, so we have a disposable free dining policy that makes on-site dining disposable free, even for McDonald's. But it also creates a place for some of these activists to work with the local restaurant community to be able to take a tool like Chartreuse, which I mentioned, and literally go door to door and say, hey, 
um, we want to help you shift from single use to reuse. And we want to walk you through and help provide the metrics for why this is a great thing to do. And so not only are we working, you know, with sectors, as I mentioned, with business sectors, we're also working at the at the city level because our, our theories of change are really tied into cities, just like cities are going to be the vanguard for climate action in, in, in the United States and around the world. They're also the vanguard for building out this new reuse economy. Um, so in addition to the the sector based business sector based theory of change, we also have the city based theories of change, and that's another part of the way that we operate. Why did you name the platform Chartreuse? <laughs> well, if you look between uh, the lines of, of of Chartreuse, you can see that it spells chart reuse, and uh, you know we we, uh. we we had an amazing amazing company that uh, uh, we worked with on on the branding for it, and you know that was the one that really really rose rose to the top for everybody. I like that. I like that. I switch gears here. You've been with Upstream for about 10 years now. What's your why? What drives you? You know, what made you decide to join and what keeps you going? Oh, great, great question. You know, I was really inspired by the circular economy idea back in college. You know, I had I had grown up um, in a fishing community in northeastern Massachusetts, a town called Gloucester, Massachusetts, where for folks that know the perfect storm, uh, that's where that that book takes place or the movie takes place. And um, you know, I'd I'd seen you know firsthand what happens when we do not steward the natural resources that we take from the planet. So when I was a kid, a lot of my buddies' dads were fishermen, and I can remember when the cod fishery collapsed, and it didn't just you know it wasn't just a disaster for the ecosystem; it was a disaster for my community. You had people losing their homes left and right, you know, fishermen losing their boats and businesses. And it was really a cautionary tale. And I remember taking that with me up through high school and into college. And I started reading about this concept um, of a circular, a circular economy where we are, you know, we are stewarding the resources that we take from the planet in these closed loops to make them last as long as possible. <laughs> and that we're powering that economy with renewable energy. And, you know, we're really figuring out how to create a decent standard of living for, you know, all the people on this planet in ways that are that work with the natural rhythms and ecosystems and all the services that nature provides to us. And I was completely and totally inspired by that. And I remember my first day on my, my first job in the space 20 years ago, I was working with a, a state-based environmental watchdog group up here in my home state of Maine to pass um, the first extended producer responsibility law for electronic waste in the United States. And what EPR means uh, is basically that, that if you make something, you need to take responsibility for the environmental impacts of that product. And typically what it's meant for a, a, like a, a computer company, for example, is that they have to pay for the collection and recycling of that product, um, or they have to pay for setting up a new, a new system uh, uh, to reuse the materials uh, or, or create a reuse service around their product or their package. And so- this was amazing for me after like having studied this in, in college to literally my first day on on you know my first <laughs> job in the field to be able to start working on this and back then this was 20 years ago there were very few experts in the field of the circular economy here in the United States and one of them was the was upstream was this organization um, that had been founded to really bring this concept uh, from Europe where it was really starting to thrive to the United States and so I started working with the founders for 10 years before I joined the organization um, on, on, on 
lots of different different policies um, that had to do with getting big companies to take responsibility for the collection and recycling of cell phones, of television sets, of mercury-containing products, of carpet and paint. And I just got really excited about this idea of policy working, you know, as a as a platform to help industry build more circular systems around the provision um, of goods and services. And so that inspired me 20 years ago, and I joined Upstream 10 years ago. I've been the, the founder retired five years ago. I've been running it for five years. And that idea is really what gets me excited to get up in the morning. And I, I think it's, you know, for me, it's it's not just like a it's not just a nice thing to do. <laughs> I actually believe that it's an imperative for humanity. You know, we have seven and a half billion people on this planet. I was at a, a, a TED uh, conference recently where an architect talked about that in by the year 2100, we're likely to have 11 billion people on this planet. And to punctuate that, he said, that's like building a city the size of New York City every single month for the next 40 years. And of course, his talk was all about how we can house all these people if we do it right with, you know, row houses and multifamily houses and solar panels and light rail and et cetera. But my thought was, how in the world are we going to be able to feed, clothe, and provide a decent standard of living for 11 billion people based on this linear one-way throwaway economy model? And the answer, of course, is that we can't. And I think that the sooner we wake up to that, especially big companies, the sooner we wake up to that, um, the more interest and activity and investment we're going to have in driving this circular economy. And I've got one more, one more quick story about that as well. So I was at this, at this TED conference, I was out to eat. I had dinner with a, with a reuse entrepreneur named Elizabeth Souble, who uh, lives in France, and she runs a company that makes reusable pouches for food and for beverages. And she said, you know, I like to think about the circular economy as a bullseye. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a dartboard, sorry. And I said, a dartboard, okay, this is interesting. Uh, go on. And she said, on the outer ring of that dartboard, those are the recycling supply chains. You know, the ones where, you know, we're, we're taking all these materials, they're crisscrossing the planet. They have a lot of environmental impacts associated with them. But in the center of that dartboard is the bullseye. Those are the reuse systems and services, these local and regional services that exist for getting people what they want and need without the waste. And she said, what we have to do is start to drive more and more economic activity away from the outer rings of the dartboard and straight towards the bullseye. And that's where the heartbeat of the circular economy lies. And I was just completely struck by that example. And I think that you know, this, this is really, like I said, it's not a, it, this isn't a nice to have, it's not a place where, you know, we hope some investment goes like, this is really an imperative for humanity. And it's not just about, you know, developed, you know, global North nations leading the way. We actually have a lot to learn from the global South where a lot of these reuse refill systems ex still exist and they've existed for long, for long periods of time. And they're done in ways where that have far less financial resources um, than the countries in the global North. And so I think there's also this, you know, this this equity issue that's that's at peace here as well. If we're going to provide a decent standard of living, we really have to rethink, you know, how we how we provide goods and products and food um, to the seven and a half billion people and growing on this planet. You know, you mentioned the target that the uh, lady kind of identified to you, and it's a really strong visual. I think you know you also mentioned the EPR 
And didn't Maine actually pass the EPR earlier this year? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, 20, 20 years of my work right there <laughs> uh, in a heartbeat. Um, you know, I've been working on this idea for 20 years of getting uh, big companies to pay for the, the collection and recycling and reuse of their packaging. This is an idea that has, you know, basically taken over the world. Uh, Europe led the way in the 1990s. Virtually all of Europe has had these um, EPR systems where the companies are the ones that are financially responsible for the for the recycling and, and reuse and, and and waste management systems and it's taken forever to, to get traction here in the United States because I think a lot of the companies said well until we're forced to do it it makes more financial sense for us to just fight it tooth and nail now that's all shifted in the last two to three years well, um, and it's also shifted for the big beverage companies around container deposits which is an, another form of, of EPR that we talk about where you know, it's the 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 nickel deposit or dime deposit on a bottle that helps to make sure that all this stuff gets collected and recycled. And so the beverage companies have also shifted their tune on not just EPR, but on deposits. And we're also seeing a lot of these big companies, you know, excited and interested in reuse and refill. Uh, I think they're ner more nervous about like the policy implications of reuse and refill if we put kind of mandatory targets on them. But there's a lot of interest in, in, in piloting it. I think they recognize that recycling is not enough to get where they need to go. But yeah, after 20 years, we finally have extended producer responsibility for packaging in the United States. It didn't just pass in Maine. Um, Maine went first, and so Maine got all the fanfare, but it also passed in, across the country in Oregon. And, and by the way, those were also the two first states <laughs> that, you know, 45 years ago uh, were the ones that passed the first bottle bills, the first container deposit laws for beverage containers uh, in the United States as well. It was Oregon and then Maine. So really, really interesting history here. And, and it's nice to see all this work is, is starting to really bear fruit. It was interesting because when it did pass earlier this summer, I was speaking to my wife and I kind of told her, I said, I think this is the first step, if you will, in addressing the issue of externalities. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's at the end of the day, like that's what what all these circular economy policies and ideas are about. It's 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 about addressing the externalities of our current linear production and consumption model that just doesn't work for the planet. And it really doesn't work for a majority of the world's people. And I think that it's not about, you know, what I always say is that what we're talking about is not about undoing capitalism and markets. What we're talking about doing is creating an economy that doesn't that isn't set up to reward the extractors of natural resources from the planet and the polluters, the waste management companies and the, the companies that clean up after the pollution on the back end. Like we need we need markets, we need capitalism to you know innovate and create the the kinds of of things that we need to help tackle climate change and provide a decent standard of living to people around the world. And to, and to kind of enable human creativity to flourish. Like I fully believe in that, but we can't, we can't do it based on kind of the 20th century and 19th century models for how we, how we create and, and provide goods. Like we really need to be just like we're rethinking how we power the global economy and power, um, you know, local and regional economies. We also have to think about how we supply the materials and for the the goods and and the things that we want and need and really rethinking like what are what are where are the ways that we can avoid single use in favor of reuse and and how can the businesses work with government and work with with NGOs to help build out that infrastructure 
one of the analogies I also like to give is that, you know, when you and I were kids, I mean, there was one bin, <laughs> it was the trash bin. There was, there was no recycling bin. And then the recycling bin came and now we've got uh, compost, we've got the compost bin in the future. We're also going to have reuse bins and part of reuse. It, it could go, it could also go through the recycling supply chains as well. So there are innovators that are literally working to have reusable containers go into your recycling bin and then get sorted off the line at the recycling facility to be shipped locally for washing and refilling. That is definitely going to be a part of it. And we need to partner with the waste management industry uh, on how to retool for reuse is what we call it. But there's also going to be new reuse infrastructure that's set up. And what I mean by that is just like we used to have the milkman model for, <laughs> for getting uh, milk to and from our, our homes and our apartments, we're going to see that coming back. We're going to start seeing um, bins on people's front porches where they can put the reusable containers. Uh, you're going to start seeing kiosks in parks and on city streets where if you are using a reusable cup service from a coffee shop, you're going to be able to walk down the street, finish your cup of coffee, find that kiosk right there, put the coffee cup in there, and on it goes to get washed, sanitized, and, and have somebody else drinking out of it the next day. So, you know, this infrastructure is something that needs investment. It needs ideation. It needs engineers, you know, and I think for your audience, you know, really getting people to, to check out this new reuse economy. You can learn more about it at upstreamsolutions.org. Um, but we've got lots of resources there and there's all kinds of entrepreneurs that are are working in this space and they're working, some of them are working with with very big companies to pilot and starting to scale some of these models. You know, it's funny you mentioned milk while you were speaking. I was having a nostalgic moment because back in London when we were kids, we did get milk in small milk bottles. Right. We, we drank and, you know, we put back in the crate at the end of every day. That's right. That's right. It's the same idea. Same idea. And I think that, you know, what what's going to enable reuse to scale is going to be some combination of utilizing the existing recycling infrastructure that's there and then also creating um, this new reuse infrastructure and keeping it simple for the consumer. I think one of the things that that um, some of the, the the groups and businesses that we're partnering with are working on is, you know, how do we standardize um the containers that are being used uh, so that you could have, for example, you know, five or six different reuse coffee cup companies that are serving uh, the city of, um, that are serving New York City or, or, or Boston or Seattle, but they're all using the same infrastructure. And you can use a kiosk that can have all of these different cups that are from different companies, but they're all standardized, stack into each other when they when they get put into the kiosk. It's stackability, engineering, there's all kinds of innovation that's happening around it. Um, there's a company that has developed a, a mobile dishwashing <laughs> facility that can fit in, the, in one tractor trailer and basically be carted around to events and carted around to stadiums. And this mobile dishwashing system can wash 100,000 reusable cups in a day. <laughs> So it's, you know, it's when you think about like some of the innovations that are going to be needed, um, a lot of the, some of the companies that are doing the reusable um, to-go container services are also using robotics technology. So they're getting efficiencies in that chain so that they're able to come at a comparable price point to the disposables. And as soon as a company can come to, you know, a restaurant and say, hey, you're spending 35 cents uh, for that compostable paper box. You can do my, you know, reuse service uh, for thirty-four cents. <laughs> we know that that's like what's going to change the game, and a lot of that is really about scale. Like, can can we justify 
um, the investment in the robotic technology and the dishwashing warehubs and the logistics companies because you know these aren't these aren't like you know this is these aren't tech companies. This isn't like you create an app and you can all of a sudden just make money from it. Like this is this is the shipment and movement of goods. And so there these are it's it is brick and mortar. There's facilities. There's infrastructure. There's a lot that goes into this. Um, but if we have the right kinds of people kind of joining the team, <laughs> we know that that's what's going to enable it to all take off. And the plants you talked about would remind me of the current bottling or packaging plants that you have. It would seem like it would just be reverse logistics back to those plants. You got it. Yeah, you got it. Re- reverse logistics and, and retooling. And, and you know, it's, it, it, what's exciting about it as well, as I mentioned, is that, you know, again, it's not just about the benefits to the environment, which, you know, are in spades. But it is about the benefits to the local and regional economies through keeping these materials in circulation locally, keeping the logistics happening locally, really, you know, avoiding the need to be uh, shipping these materials all over the world. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, yeah, there, there will be losers in, in, in this new reuse economy. And, and for, from our perspective, that's going to be the extraction companies, the petrochemical companies on the front end that, that, want, that look at single-use plastics, especially in single-use packaging as, the, as, as their way to, uh, you know, keep producing <laughs> as much as possible and justify, you know, more, in, more investments in that infrastructure. Those companies are going to lose. The waste management companies could win if they figure out how to retool as reuse service companies. And I think that that is also something that we're really excited about. Um, and the CPGs are going to win because the, the, be- the consumer packaged goods companies, the beverage companies, consumable products companies, they're going to win because we, we fundamentally believe, and I think the, the pilots have shown this, that these systems can get supply chain efficiencies such that at scale, they can, the, the prices can be less than going the single use disposable route. And so that for us is like, you know, that's the prize. And uh, we need a lot more experimenting and ideation and uh, execution around, around these different ideas so that we can prove that to more and more sectors. I agree. So you've been on this journey for about 20 years. What's the most <laughs> valuable lesson you've learned about yourself on your journey? Wow, what a great question. Um, you know, I think perseverance uh, is is a big one. I'm sure that, I'm sure probably lots of people say this, but um, you know, just to give you an example of the that we we talked about extended producer responsibility legislation finally passing in Maine and Oregon this last year. Well, I I was intimately involved in the last two efforts <laughs> to try to make that happen. You know, five, six, seven years ago, and then to, you know, almost twenty years before that. Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, ten years before that, and uh, and and I think that that. What I learned was, you know, I never gave up on the concept, right? I never stopped believing that this was what we needed to do and this was this was possible, even when, you know, we had some significant setbacks and, and you would even call them failures. Like when we had some support from a couple of brands that basically tried to move the, the policy idea forward, couldn't get support from anybody else, and then they just kind of walked away. That was a failure moment. But I never stopped believing in the fact that we needed it. And I just went back to the drawing board and said, well, what were we missing? Right. And I think one of the things that we were missing was really, you know, a a poster child, a why (laughs) for why we needed corporate accountability for packaging waste. And to me that, you know, that poster child was plastic pollution. And so we went all in on plastics and, you know, we've helped to support the growth of this incredible global plastics movement that's, that's taken root here in the United States and around the world. 
And that is what has provided <laughs> the, the space uh, and, and it's provided the, 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 the pressure on companies to come to the table and eventually now support EPR for packaging. Most of the big brands uh, are, are changing their positions and working to support EPR for packaging laws that, that work for them. Um, and I think it's the same thing that's happened around the beverage companies and, and container deposits. I think these companies have gotten tired of seeing themselves li- labeled as the biggest plastic polluters in the world. <laughs> you know, they just want to sell products. They don't want to be plastic polluters. And so, you know, th- I think, again, th- that perseverance piece and just, you know, when something doesn't work out, if you believe in the idea, you know, looking for a different avenue to getting it done. So speaking of believing in an idea, let's fast forward to 2030. Yeah. Magic wand. Where would you like to see the reuse movement? Yeah, I love this because we're we're literally like right in the in the middle of strategic planning for upstream right now. We're doing our next three year strategic plan, and one of the concepts that I put out to the staff and the board is this thirty by thirty idea. You know, what if we could get thirty percent of all goods <laughs> sold in the United States, from beverages to to to, to shampoo to to takeout meals you know, in reuse refill uh, uh, packaging by 2030. Like that's a big, bold goal, 30 by 30. I think that for, you know, for us, like each each sector has its own opportunities and its own challenges. And so I might've mentioned this earlier, but, you know, we're looking at the food service sector, the beverage sector, consumer packaged goods sector, uh, e-commerce and online retail and and, and waste management, you know, those and, and recycling, like those are the the five sectors. And some of them are more ripe than others. I, I think that I think within food service we could see a lot of this stuff really building out. Just like how you know, 10, 15 years ago, you didn't, there weren't any bike sharing. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't any bike sharing uh, uh, businesses in cities, and now every single major city you go to a city and there's 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 a bike sharing service, uh, which I love by the way because that's my favorite way to get around a city is on a bike. And um, they're everywhere now. And so I think that within 10 years, you're going to see that same kind of infrastructure around reuse for takeout cups, takeout containers, et cetera. And so my hope is that not only will we have that for, for food service, but that beverage will be able to do that. Consumer package, we'll see like increasing parts of the grocery store devo- devoted to getting products to people in reusable and refillable uh, packaging formats. And I also think that, you know, looking at, at the waste management sector, really seeing that sector start to embrace the opportunities in becoming a reuse service provider. And so that sector really starts to shift as well. So, you know, 30 by 30 is a big, bold, audacious goal. Um, but I do believe it's one that in this fast changing world that will be possible if we get the sufficient interest from investors uh, like the folks listening to this podcast as well as governments, as well as the activists on the ground working to create the conditions to make it happen. Well, audacious goals are the ones that get people out of bed. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So last question, and you mentioned perseverance earlier, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, besides reusing and refilling, what would it be? Well, you know, on this issue itself, I think that, you know, Avoiding single-use plastic as much as possible. Uh, so you know th- these individual actions, such as bringing your reusable water bottle, your coffee cup, those things do matter, and and it also signals to people in your community as well as to the companies that you that you support and buy from 
that things are shifting. And as more and more consumers get engaged around, around uh, you know, shifting out of single use to reuse, that that is, is hugely important. I would also say if you're listening to this podcast and it resonated with you to just to start having conversations. And it, it does start like with dinner table conversations. It starts with conversations with the businesses you frequent, the politicians you vote for, you know, around um, the need to address not just single-use plastic, but single-use waste in general, and get get involved in you know working on some of these new reuse um, ideas, whether that's as an investor and in, in going out and, and finding some some companies to invest in, or as a community uh, uh, person getting involved in your community about helping to bring some of these changes to your community. Um, we see it all the time that kids are the ones that are are literally transforming you know the cafeteria at school, and then they they think bigger and they're like, oh, we got to do the school district, and now we got to do the town, and so. You know, a lot of it starts with these, um, you know, these small community level conversations. And that is really what helps to signal that norms are shifting in society. And the big companies, they're always paying attention to consumer preferences and what what is changing in society so that they can stay relevant. And so I, I just would say, like, you know, avoid single use plastic, but more importantly, um, you know, get involved in, 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 in having the kinds of conversations around the dinner table, you know, in your community with the businesses you frequent, the politicians you vote for about how to uh, address plastic pollution and elevate and accelerate this new reuse economy. Well, Matt, I enjoy the conversations and this conversation with you, and I look forward to the success of Upstream and catching up with you again soon. Raj, it's been a real, real pleasure. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.